Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Now, our Holy Father, we affirm with Isaiah of old, and as we just sang, there is no one like you. You are great, you are high, you are lifted up. And we look forward to the fact that the promises that you have made, you will keep, that you'll not abandon our bodies to the grave, but when the Lord Jesus will come with this shout that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are alive and remain that we will be caught up in the twinkling of an eye in a moment's time and we'll meet you in the air and one another. What a great and marvelous day you have promised this blessed hope. So help us to keep our eye on the end goal that we might between here and there live wisely and accomplish the plans and purposes you have. We pray for all those who are listening this morning, those who will listen to it later on, this message. Thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it will accomplish the purpose for you have sent it, and so we rest and trust in that. I ask you for your help in this service, and later tonight in the evening time at Meet the Pastor, that I might lift up the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God, in whose name I pray, Lord Jesus, amen. Take God's word, would you? Acts chapter 1 this morning. We have been in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule, and God willing, before summer's end, we're going to begin a brand new book of the Bible, verse by verse. But right now, I'm addressing a number of special needs, questions some of you have written to me about. Others, uh, well, these are just some burdens God has laid upon me that I felt like I need to address as your pastor. We're here in the book of Acts this morning. It's a record of the very first 30 years of church history. If you read the opening words to the Gospel of Luke, Luke describes the first volume that he wrote concerning what Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. This is volume two, the book of Acts, and he continues what Jesus began to do and teach now through his apostles by the Holy Spirit. And these men were so radically transformed and changed that in the words of the critics, they turned the world upside down. I hope you have found it by now. I promise you, if you have a Bible in your lap, you'll get 50% more out of any sermon that I preach. Many come here, they don't own a Bible. Come to meet the pastor tonight and you'll be gifted one. And so today I want to address the subject, finding God's will for my life. Can I really find God's specific will for my life? Does he have a plan for me? Well, there are many, many passages in the Word of God that teach, yes, you can, I've selected this particular passage, though Luke didn't write it to say, here's how you find God's will for your life. These are just ordinary people, just like you and I, who sought the Lord for His direction. And what we find here is an illustration of how to find God's will, whether it's His sovereign will 
or whether it's his specific will. Acts chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 12, if you'll follow along with me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakidama, that is, field of blood. Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his residence be made desolate, may there be none living in it, and may another take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all people. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I want you to imagine yourself this morning face to face with the Lord Jesus, and you can ask him any question that you would like to ask. You have the opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, there's something I want to ask you. Would you please answer it for me? I have an idea of what many of you would ask. You would probably ask if you were in a face-to-face encounter to him what the Apostle Paul asked in the Damascus Road, Lord, what shall I do? As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul asked the Lord Jesus that question. He asked him two questions. He said, who are you, Lord, and what would you have me to do? And Paul spent the rest of his life discovering who Jesus is. He knew on that day that he was Lord, but he grew in a deeper relationship, a fuller knowledge, and he learned what God's plan was for his life. Now, Paul, the great apostle, did not ask, what would others have me to do, nor what do others want me to do? He asked, Lord, what would you have me to do? Surveys that measure the felt needs of Christians, and I get many of them as a pastor, and the top 10, in fact, we cover this in the discovery class of the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity, some that are asked by believers, some by unbelievers, but how do I find God's will for my life? And if you're a parent, you should help your children to know how, to, how do they discern God's will, God's plan. 
They have big decisions concerning their master, their mate, and their mission in life. And your parent, parental responsibility is to come alongside and to give them the principles. But this is not just something for young people. You may be 80 years old and you still need to be asking, God, what would you have me to do? What is your specific plan as it relates to my life? Now, this morning's passage has many, many practical uh, principles here. And let me just say, the principles, first and foremost, relate to a believer. If you've not been born again, then this message won't really relate to you specifically. There's an assumption here as I speak of God's will, God's personal will for your life, that you've first obeyed by calling upon the name of Christ in faith. And so I want to begin, notice in verse 13, it says, um, and when they had entered the city, that is Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room. Here they are in the upper room. And remember, this is not just any ordinary upper room. This is the upper room. And so what we find here is a picture of God's sovereign will. Verse 12 said they went a Sabbath day journey. How far is that? 2,000 cubits. That's about three quarters of a mile. And so God gave some restrictions on how far you could travel on the Sabbath. And so, of course, here they are in the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across to the city of Jerusalem to the upper room. And there are two upper rooms here in Acts. There's the upper room where Jesus gave the instructions about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a second upper room. It's not articular, an upper room that you find in Acts chapter 2. And so here in the 13th verse, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room. And notice where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now who are these men? They're called in Scripture the Twelve. And they are handpicked by the Lord Jesus to be his apostles. There is one, of course, who is not here. And so they were also called the Eleven in Scripture. Judas is not here because he defected. Now, we're talking about God's sovereign will, and God's sovereign will is God's right to rule, that there are some things that God is going to do no matter what. He is going to accomplish his plans. And in God's sovereignty, God chose Judas. Why did God choose Judas, knowing that he would defect from the faith, renounce Christ, and even help those who are involved in Christ's murder? Well, the son of perdition came to be one of the apostles through the direction of the father to the son as he relied on the spirit and Christ chose them. Why did he choose them? He was a defector. Well, remember, none of these men are perfect. You know, the disciples are often pictured as wearing a halo behind their heads. There's no halos here. Peter is present. Peter who outrightly denied the Lord Jesus three times. Uh, you have men like Philip. He had witnessed miracle after miracle. And then when Jesus needs to feed 5,000 and there's just a small amount of change and a few loaves of bread, how is he going to feed 5,000 men, excluding women and children, probably 20,000 with so little? He was in unbelief. Thomas, he's mentioned here. He was the one in the upper room when he was not present on the first resurrection Sunday. And eight days later, of course, on the next Sunday, he meets the Lord. But he made it clear, unless I literally see the nail scars and put my hands there, I'll not believe. All these 11 who are listed, 
they were to gather Luke 22 in an argument over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And all of them on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, defected. They fled. So why did he choose these men and not some others equally qualified? Because this is part of God's sovereign will. Notice verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. The women being these Galilean women. This is a Galilean crowd. And these women who traveled from Galilee and their steps are traced in the gospel from Galilee to Jerusalem, along with the women, and noted specifically Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I hope you've noticed that they're not praying to Mary. Mary is praying with these apostles. And really, these apostles, it would be better to say not the apostles were praying with Mary, but Mary was praying with the apostles. Because the apostles were the leaders that God had. Now, sadly, we live in a day where Mariology and much false doctrine concerning her from our Roman Catholic friends has been germinated through the centuries. Now, if you know me, I love Roman Catholics. And many of you have come to faith from a Roman Catholic background, myself included. But please understand that the Roman Catholic Church denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. They deny that. They deny the basic tenet of salvation by grace. They teach that good works help save, and those good works do not come from an imputed righteousness, but through an infused grace brought about through the sacramental system. And so there are believers in the Roman church who have called upon Christ in faith, but doctrinally on paper, they teach another Jesus. And they teach many heretical doctrines, including their, tr- their so-called truths about Mary. They say not simply that Jesus was immaculately conceived, we affirm that, that Jesus had no sin nature, but they say Mary was immaculately conceived, that she never ever sinned. Well, Mary thought differently of herself in Luke 1 In verse 47, she says, my soul exults, it rejoices in God my Savior. The Bible teaches in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But through the centuries, many heresies has surrounded the mother of Jesus. She was very special. I'm not going to minimize that. Of all the women on the planet, of all the Jewish women that would carry the Messiah, she was chosen. But sadly, not only Roman Catholics, but the Eastern Orthodox Church also prays to Mary and in addition to saints, saints that have been dictated as such from the church. And it's a very different definition of sainthood than, of course, the one you find in the Scripture. They believe that a saint who is in heaven has closer access to God the Father than you do, so you should go through the saints. But the scripture teaches in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are to approach the throne of grace through who? Through Jesus. When Paul spoke to Timothy, he said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No one else can mediate except God the Son. Oh, but they say to pray to Mary or to pray to a saint is no different than if you ask a friend to pray for you. Well, certainly in places like Ephesians 6, Paul asked the church 
to pray for him as he does in the book of Colossians. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament where believers pray for each other. However, nowhere, anywhere in all of Scripture do you have a believer on earth going to some person who's in heaven to carry the requests to the Father. That's not biblical. Not to mention neither is Mary nor the saints omniscient. I mean, just logically, how could millions of prayer requests come at the same time to a finite person or persons? It's impossible. And so again, we do not get this from Scripture. Mary was a sinner, a great woman. Neither do we affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary. Will you notice here in this verse, in verse 14, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is here, and Jesus' brothers. Now, this verse, along with a number of passages, teaches, teach that Jesus had brothers. Now, again, the Roman church teaches that Mary never had a relationship with Joseph ever. The Scripture begs to differ. In Matthew 125, Joseph, we're told, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. He had no relationship with her until the Messiah of the world came here. And so the perpetual virginity of Mary cannot be defended from Scripture. In fact, it's forced. In fact, it's contradictory to a number of passages. For instance, in Matthew 13, the crowds ask, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not Mary, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Here he speaks of the Lord's brothers. Four of them are named. Again, in the Latin Vulgate Bible, the specificity that these are his human brothers is lost. But the Latin Vulgate is a translation God inspired the New Testament in Greek, and it's definitive in the New Testament, not to mention contextually, the four brothers are named. And in addition, sisters are in the plural, so we know there's at least two sisters. In fact, Matthew 12, 46 tells us, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, the mother and brothers were out, standing outside seeking to speak to him. And Mark adds in his gospel that they wanted note to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses, and of course, the resurrection changed all of that. But why did God the Father select Mary to be the mother of the Lord Jesus? And why did he allow Jesus to be raised in a family where at least his half-brothers, we don't know about the sisters, but at least the half-brothers opposed Jesus? Why that family? Well, for the same reason God puts you in the family that you are in, the sovereignty of God. I've had more than one young person over the decades say, I just wish I had a different family. Why did God put me in this family where I have unbelieving parents? The sovereignty of God. Nothing is wasted. And you may have had a two-legged rascal as a daddy, but God is still sovereign and God uses circumstances that may look negative to shape us, to mold us, to build us. Now, notice, if you will, at verse 15. And at, that, and at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. 
Now, the word here for brethren is generic, and so if you're using the 2020 edition of the NAS, it says the brothers and sisters are in italics, but it is implied. This is a generic term. He's speaking to all the people present, men and women alike, in that upper room. So here they are in the midst of a prayer meeting, and the Lord leads Peter to stand up, and then notice, parenthetically, we're told, a gathering of about 120 persons was there. And so they're in this upper room. Peter stands up, and we read in verse 16. Now notice the change. It says, brethren, or if you're using NASB 2020, it says, brothers. And this is a gender-specific term. He combines the, he combines the word air for men in deference to women with the term aldelphos. And rightly so, if you... Let Scripture interpret Scripture because only a man could fill the office of an apostle. So now he is turning his focus specifically to the men who are present. Brothers, brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry." Now, we might ask, why did Jesus choose Judas, knowing that Judas, as an act of his own free will, would be a guide to those who arrested him? God's sovereign will. God does as he pleases. And he used Judas, an evil, wicked, unregenerate man who was a false disciple, and he used Judas to betray the Son of God. And this morning, sadly, he is in hell. Now, Judas was a free moral agent. God's sovereign choice. Remember, Jesus spent the night in prayer, and God revealed which 12 he should select. And he came under God's sovereign choice. And in God's sovereign choice, God used Judas to bring about the crucifixion. Peter reminds us here in verse 16 that he chose him that the Scripture had, because the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. We think not of David as a prophet, but he's not only called a king in Scripture, he's also called a prophet. And God foretold this through King David. In fact, twice over, when Jesus refers to Judas in the Gospel of John, he said he was chosen that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Judas fulfilled one of 330-plus prophecies. Many of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled Some were done by his enemies. This particular one one was done by a false disciple, a false apostle. You say, well, did Judas have a choice? Of course he did. Was he forced to betray Christ? Of course not. He chose to do that. God loved Judas. God wanted Judas to be saved. And if Judas had turned and was saved, God would have used someone else. Then you say, how was it prophesied that he would do this if he didn't have a chance? It was not prophesied that he did not have a chance. What was prophesied simply is what he would do. So he's not some puppet. He's not some pawn. He's not some person on a divine chessboard. He freely, knowingly chose to reject the Lord Jesus. One reformer in his commentary wrote these words, that Judas betrayed Christ not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. Do you think that God would have crippled Judas and then in turn blamed him for limping? Of course not. 
Judas did what he did. God knew he was going to do what he did because God is omniscient. But God had Judas as part of his plan, knowing that he would reject Jesus. He had a choice, and God wrote about it centuries before. Only God knows the future. And it's one of several arguments we can give. All men know the Bible's the word of God, no matter what. They may say to you they don't believe it. They're lying. It's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pricks the heart when they hear it. They know it's truth. But you can also reason with them, give a defense for the hope that's within you, an apologetic, and that only the Scripture has fulfilled prophecy. Now, when you come notice to verses 18 and 19, you'll see, at least in the New American Standard, that they are in brackets, those two verses, meaning this is a parenthetical note. Now, there is no punctuation in the ancient manuscripts, but this is rightly inserted in Greek. As you study it and learn it, you learn that you can discern whether this is a question or uh, whether this is kind of a parenthetical thought or whether this is like an exclamation said with power by the way God structures the language. And so there are no punctuation marks, but still, this is important, and it's an important interruption. Remember, these are 120 Galileans. What did they speak? Well, they, they spoke Aramaic. And what did most people reading the New Testament speak? Greek. In fact, all the books of the New Testament were written in Greek. What did most Jews speak in the first century? Greek. Even those who were born and raised in Jerusalem spoke Greek. They had been reading for over 200 years the Septuagint. Some spoke Hebrew. They were a minority, but they read Greek. And the audience that Luke is writing to is largely a Gentile audience who don't know what halkidama in Aramaic means. And so it's an important parenthesis. Notice again, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Now this is a very important verse for you to understand to be able to make a defense for the hope within you. Liberal scholars will often use this, like some of the cults, to say that there are mistakes and errors in the Bible and it cannot be trusted. Why this? Because it's an easy one for them to remember. I was asked to come into a class at Duke University to defend the Christian faith, and there was a guy with a double PhD who was a professor. And what I soon discovered when I referenced the scripture is he didn't know it. He was attacking the Bible, the very Bible that he had never read or studied. And you will soon learn that that is generally what happens with most liberal scholars. Bishop R.P.C. Hansen writes in his commentary that Matthew's account and Acts' account, in the book of Acts, both accounts cannot be true. And so they use this for, secondly, you have people like Mormon missionaries. I hope you understand that Mormons are not Christians. And they have tried to snuggle up to evangelicals, but they're not Christians. They may call themselves the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, but they are not Christians. And though they are trying to do joint efforts with evangelicals, and some are openly embracing them when they should be separating from those who teach false doctrines. We had several hundred pounds of canned goods delivered to our food pantry one day, and Pastor Vince said, 
Nobody knew where they came from, and as he read the side of the can, it said the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, and they had a 1-800 number for you to call. I said, I want one of those cans. It's in my library on the bookshelf. So slick, trying to use our food pantry to teach and preach their false message. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the veracity of Scripture. They deny salvation by grace alone. They deny every major historical doctrine in the Christian faith, including eternal, the eternal retribution of unbelievers. There's many I could cite. And I say this is important for you to be able to give a defense. The word is apologia. We get our word apologetic from it. To give a defense for the hope that's within you. You need to be able to respond because sooner or later you're going to count, encounter these people. And many people who are in cults are people who are there because the cult was the first to reach them. Or they grew up in a home where that's all they knew. And many of them will be responsive to the gospel if you are sensitive and love them and still at the same time preach the truth. But these 18, 19, 20-year-old males who do a two-year missionary, females 18 months, they're trained to use this verse out of the book of Acts. And so when you begin to show them, because when they show up at your door, they'll bring two volumes, the King James Version, and they'll bring the Book of Mormon. And when push comes to shove and you show them, look, you say you believe what we believe, but look at this verse. This totally contradicts the Book of Mormon. The Bible says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Book of Mormon says he was born in Jerusalem. They both can't be right. And so when push comes to shove, they'll say, well, your book has been corrupted and only the Book of Mormon has been protected. Of course, they will not tell you that between the first edition of the Book of Mormon, done in 1830, to the current one that they read, that there's over 3,000 textual changes. I'm not speaking about language updates. I'm talking about an actual change in what the verses say. Dr. Walter Martin did a classic work back in the 1960s called The Kingdom of the Cults, and he does a superb job in documenting many of these inconsistencies. In either case, when the conversation is turned, they'll say, look, this is what Acts says. Listen to what Matthew wrote. You should put out next to verse 18, Matthew 27, 5 through 8. Matthew 27, verses 5 through 8. Let me read that to you. It says, and he, that is Judas, threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. and went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And so they'll say, well, there's Matthew's account that says Judas hanged himself. And there's the book of Acts that says he fell headlong and burst forward. Um, there's Matthew's account that said that the chief priest bought the field, and there's Luke's account that says he acquired the field. Who did it? Well, they're both true. Some of you have been with me, and on occasion we've stopped at the Valley of Hinnon, the potter's field, and there are ledges there with jagged rocks to this day, and even in that dry little climate, there are still little trees that grow out of them. And so as Judas was hung, one of uh, several possibilities happened. 
Either the knot slipped, or the rope broke, or the limb snapped, and he fell headlong, and he burst open. Actually, the two accounts perfectly coincide. We don't know how long he hung there, but after several hours, your body begins to bloat. And if he had been there for 24 hours, he would have been mega bloated. In either case, he popped open. And of course, Acts 1 presumes that his hanging took place as it did to describe it the way that he did. In addition, we are told something here about the potter's field. We're told in Matthew's account that the chief priests bought the potter's field. They took the 30 pieces of silver that were thrown at their feet, and they said, this is blood money. It's dirty money. We can't give this to the Lord's work. We can't put it in the holy treasury of the temple. And so we'll buy a, a burial ground for foreigners, for strangers who come to our city. That's what religious people do. Here they are, these men who were involved in the murder, the execution of an innocent man, nonetheless under the providence and sovereignty of God, according to the preordained plan and purposes of God. Here they are committing this evil act, and yet they get religious here. Oh, we can't use the money for that. And so they buy the potter's field as a burial place. Now, please note, Acts 1.18 does not say that Judas acquired the field. Notice what the text says. It says, now this man, being Judas, acquired a field how? With the price of his wickedness. It was through his wicked act that the field was acquired. Now, that's all part of God's sovereign will. Secondly, this morning, I want us to think not just of God's sovereign will. I want us to think about God's standard will. There in your outline, God's standard will. You need to get this. You need to be able to help your children, your grandchildren, people you disciple. I don't care if they're 10 or 110. These are important truths. This is part of the discipleship process. Now, God's standard will refers to those things that God has specifically commanded all people to do. Sometimes believers and unbelievers alike. God's standard will in all the ages is to follow the Ten Commandments. God's standard will is to obey the Sermon on the Mount, things like the golden rule. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to cheat. It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to commit adultery. It's always right to tell the truth. It's always right to live a separated life. Those are things that apply to every human being. Now, it is true that there are some truths that apply in a standard way to believers, and there are some truths that apply to believers during a particular time in human history. For example, it was God's standard will at one time in history for his people to bring a sacrifice to the temple, but no longer because in this dispensation, at this time frame in history, though God never changes and he is the same today and forever, nonetheless, God, because of the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, there are no blood sacrifices, none, none that are to be done. It's interesting when you think about those who came off the ark and then at Babel, they were dispersed. You have all these cultures in the world today, many of whom perform blood sacrifices. Sham and I were in India, and it was a special Hindu holiday. And on every corner, there was some blood sacrifice for something. Because of the once and for all sacrifice, we no longer do that. So God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the way he deals with his people in a specific time frame 
does change. And so when we read the commands of Scripture, we need to always ask at what time frame and to whom specifically was this command given. For instance, Jesus gave this command in Luke 21, 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city. We studied this not long ago in our series on Bible prophecy. Who is this given to? Tribulation saints. It's given to those who are alive during this seven-year period in history. God's standard will for you as a parent is to raise your child. Forget what our president said, that these are our children. The government does not own your children. You own them. It is your job to raise them, to bring them up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. You are to raise your children, not some daycare and not some next-door neighbor. You are to do it. That's part of God's standard will. It's part of God's standard will for me as a pastor teacher to feed the flock of God. God has gifted me and called me to do that. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not to share my opinion. I'm to open the Scriptures and feed you with God's truth. So here in Acts chapter 1, we find an example not only of God's sovereign will in choosing the family for Mary, for Jesus to be in, in choosing the disciples that he chose, but we find something about God's standard will. Listen to this statement without the parenthesis, beginning in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, and received his portion in this ministry. Now verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it, and may another take his office. He's quoting first Psalm 69 and then Psalm 109. The first Psalm 69 explains Judas's defection in his death. The second Psalm of the need to replace him. Now, Psalm 69, I preached a whole sermon on it once. It's one of the great messianic psalms in Scripture. It's quoted five times in the New Testament. And, of course, it's applied to Judas, this aspect of the psalm. Psalm 109, also a prophetic psalm. It's commonly accepted based on the exegetical principle of, the, of analogous subject for them to apply it to Judas. These two psalms are sermons in themselves. But what I want you to say is that God, centuries before, wrote of the need to replace one of these apostles. May another man take his office. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary. You might want to underscore or circle that word necessary. Some things in the Christian life are necessary. Why? Because God commands it as part of his standard will and it demands a response. It is necessary that I do not lie or commit adultery or steal. It is necessary that I share my faith. That's all part of God's standard will and it applies to the apostles and to us. Now, this particular aspect of God's standard will has application to the apostles. So we might ask a question at this juncture, why was it necessary for them to replace Judas? It was necessary because of a promise Jesus had made to the 12, a promise that Judas had forfeited in his renouncing Jesus is Lord. Right next to verse 21, would you Luke 22:30? Put it out on the margin next to verse 21, Luke 22:30. Let me read it to you. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. 
He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb happens during the seven-year period while we are in heaven. But the supper, contrary to a lot of pictures where they show this cloud-like kind of dreamy meal, no, it takes place on earth and includes not just the church, but it includes tribulation saints and all the Old Testament saints. The whole family, so to speak, will be at that meal. And of course, he granted that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus draws a parallel between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles in a very special place that they'll play in the coming millennial kingdom. Now, James, of course, if you remember, was the first apostle to be martyred. But there was no need to replace him or any of the other apostles who were later martyred. Why? Because he didn't defect from the faith. He was faithful unto death, to quote Jesus. Someone wrote me recently, I don't know if they're in this service or if they were in the first one, and they said, well, uh, since Judas defected and you were preaching a sermon I heard about the 12 foundational stones in the New Jerusalem, whose name would be written on that 12th stone? Would it be the Apostle Paul? And the answer is no. It would be Matthias who is added to the 11. And of course, here's the point. God who knows the future, seeing centuries in advance what is going to happen, wrote of this need of someone to replace Judas. Look again. It would be from those who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter's proposal, among other things, shed some light on the office of apostle. The person had to be a witness of his resurrection. The resurrection, of course, is a central component to what we preach. You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. The death of Jesus on the cross is meaningless. If he was not raised, it was his resurrection that affirmed his sinlessness, his ability to die. And of course, you had to have seen the resurrected Lord to be counted as an apostle. Paul will ask in 1 Corinthians 9.1, have I not seen the risen Lord? Of course I have. That was one of the qualifications to be an apostle. But Judas's replacement as one of the foundational 12 needed a further qualification. It's spelled out from this group. It had to be one who had accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. So God's standard will is related to Judas' replacement. It had to be someone who was a witness of the resurrection, unlike Paul. It had to be someone who from the beginning, starting with the baptism of John, all the way until his ascension from the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that he will return to, they had to be there. And let me just say that God has a standard will for your life and for my life as well. And while it may of course, not be for you to be an apostle. There are no apostles today. There are commands that God gave to the apostles that apply to us. There's 500 on a mountain right outside of Magdala in Israel that Jesus gave to 500 people. He gave the Great Commission five times. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That applies not just to those 500 but to everyone who knows Jesus for the promises to those who will do this until the end of the age. 
all Christians as part of God's standard will are to be baptized. It's called credo or believer's baptism. Believe, then be baptized. All Christians are to give their tithes and offerings to a local assembly. All Christians are to find out what their spiritual gift is and to use that spiritual gift in a local assembly. All Christians are called to love one another. And so there are some things that he commands every believer to do. That's part of God's standard will. So there's God's sovereign will. There's God's standard will. Third on your outline, there's God's specific will. God has a specific will for your life, just as he has a specific will for my life. God deals with us not just in the masses, but as individuals. And God has as many custom plans, I suppose, as there are people. God has his methods, but God has his men. You're not simply an accident, you're an incident. And God has a specific plan as it relates to your life. For instance, in God's sovereign will, It was his will for me to become a Christian. I didn't become a Christian on my own. I couldn't. I was dead, Ephesians 2, 1, dead in my trespasses and my sins. And I had as much ability to bring myself to Christ as a dead man can get up out of a coffin and start preaching. So I hope you don't have some braggadocious testimony about how smart you were and all the apologetic books you read and you figured your way into the kingdom. No, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are saved. The initiation began with God, and then he quickly adds, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's God's sovereign will for you to be saved. But as part of God's standard will, and for me, it was that I might be married. And God's standard will is that I might be married to a born-again Christian. Being saved is important, but as you are saved and maybe as you walk with the Lord, God shows you that it's not good for you to be alone and that you need to be married. And of course, God's will is that you never, ever, ever marry an unbeliever. And so who do I marry? Do I marry Thelma Lou or do I marry Helen Crump? Well, you want to find the will of God as it relates to your life. And let me just say parenthetically, If you're here and you are married to an unbeliever, either A, out of ignorance, B, out of rebellion, or C, because you you got saved before that person did, the marriage you are in this morning is God's will for your life. But if you've not been married, then God wants you only to marry a believer. Listen, I tell young people all the time, it is far better to wait on God's best. It is far better to be single wanting to be married than to be married wanting to be single. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And so he asked this series of rhetorical questions, absolutely nothing. What harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And so to those of you who are single, you do not have to pray if the person is an unbeliever whether or not you should marry them. Until they're converted, it is not God's will for you to even consider them. And be careful about what I call marriage altar conversion. 
some guy who supposedly fakes Christianity because he wants to marry you so bad, and then when you get into the marriage, he has no interest. You marry someone who has a heart for the Lord, someone who truly, genuinely loves the Lord Jesus. So I believe it was part of God's standard will for me as a Christian to get married, but I believe it was part of God's specific will for me to marry Audrey. His standard will is you find in the Bible. His specific will, I'm going to give you some ways in which you find that. And so I used to pray, Lord, please make Audrey like me. Please make Audrey want to marry me. And then one day she saw the light and we got married. (laughs) God has a specific will, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. It's the word poema, we're his poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, but you're saved to do good works. In the next verse, you're saved unto good works, the King James puts it, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, there are certain works that God prepared beforehand that he wants you to walk in. That is, he has a specific plan for your life. David will say, your hand will lead me. In Psalm 37, in verse 23, he's inspired to write, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Forget Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God, done in the 1980s, that God only has a standard will, but he doesn't have a specific will for your life. He was wrong. That's why virtually no one ever agreed with him, and yet it was a bestseller because of the ignorance in our day. No, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. Psalm 31.3, for you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, you will lead me and guide me. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. Let me say, there are many common misconceptions as it refers to this specific will of God. Some people think that God hands you a roadmap and here it is, just follow it. No, it's not given to you all at once. It's unfolded over the course of your entire life. You've often heard me say it's like driving down the road at night. You can't see three miles down the road. You can only see 300 yards down the road. When you go through those 300 yards, you can see the next 300 yards. If you told me as a new Christian that I was going to be a pastor, I probably would have run in the opposite direction. God unfolds his will in his perfect timing. A second common misconception is that the will of God is something that's not really enjoyable. You know, that God sees you having fun and he says, we've got to stop that. No, the, the, the will of God, when you're in the center of God's specific will for your life, it's delightful. Listen to what Psalm 37, 4 says. I love this verse. Delight yourself in Yahweh the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As I read my Hebrew text, it's structured as such that as you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires that you have in your heart come from God. Not saying, oh, I want to have a new car. No, as you walk with God, God puts in your heart the desires that he wants you to have. The psalmist can say this in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you don't have to be afraid of the will of God. It's not something you have to do. It's something that you get to do. In Paul's words, it is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A third misconception concerning the specific will of God is that it's only for certain people. You know, the the pastor, the missionary, the evangelist, 
the full-time Christian worker, but God doesn't have that kind of plan for me. Yes, he does. God has a specific will for the plumber, and he has one for the preacher. God has a specific will for the seminary student as well as the secretary. God has a specific will for the missionary as well as the mother. And so we have this mistaken view that it's only people that are called to ministry for which God has a specific will because they will often share how they came to find God's specific will. No, your job, though different from mine, is as spiritual as mine is. It's just a different focus that God has given you. And sometimes while we're here, people have the mistaken thought that finding God's specific will only relates to young people. You may be 75 this morning, and you need to continue to find out what God's specific will is. Don't just assume it, that everything is now, because maybe you're in the final quarter, is going to continue as it does. Maybe you're 60 years old, and God wants to show you some specific ministry He has for you. Maybe you're 80 years old, and God says you're still strong enough to go to the mission field, at least for some mission trip. And so you are to seek the Lord. It's not just for youth, it's for the adults. A fourth misconception is that God's specific will comes through some cataclysmic experience. And people will turn to Paul on the Damascus Road who fell to the ground, or Martin Luther who was riding a horse and lightning struck nearby and he fell off his horse and he said, okay, St. Anne, I'll become a monk. And in that process of becoming a monk, he, he met the Lord. By the way, Paul never f- fell off a horse. I, I hear that. All. It's possible he did. Just as he fell to the ground. There's no horse mentioned in Scripture, but I've heard that preached many, many times. They're confusing his conversion with Luther's. But it's not always dramatic. In fact, most of the time, finding the specific will of God has nothing to do with drama. Uh, three years ago today, we were in 1 Kings 19. Let me dust off your memory. Here's Elijah. He had seen a fantastic ministry up on top of Mount Carmel. And now he's fleeing, he's hiding in a cave. And so he said in 1 Kings 19, 11, go forth, God said, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, I know this is unique. It's a prophet of God, but there's spillover here for us. There's some timeless principles I don't want you to miss. Sometimes we want to see God in in some spectacular way. But most of the time, that's not how it's going to happen. And God is going to remind this great prophet of God this. We need, we think, to see the mountains shake. Look what the text says. But the Lord was not in the wind. He continues, and after the wind and earthquake, oh, wow, this must be God speaking to me. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then the next verse immediately states, after the earthquake, a fire. I know this has got to be God. The Lord was not in the fire. Where are you, Lord? You told me to come to Mount Horeb. Here I am in this cave, seeking your will and your plan. Where are you? And the Bible says, and after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Now, the King James does not directly translate the Hebrew. It interprets the Hebrew. 
but rightly so because this is the essence. It renders it a still, small voice. Just a soft, gentle, blowing breeze. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You mean you didn't tell me to to cover my face in the earthquake? No, because I wasn't in the earthquake. You mean to tell me you didn't want me to cover my face in the strong wind when the mountains were rent? No, because I wasn't in the strong wind. You mean to tell me you didn't want me to cover my face in the fire? No, because I wasn't in the fire. Where are you, Lord? He wasn't in the spectacular. Earthquakes are rare and exceptional. But gentle, blowing breezes happen every single day. Now, God wanted to teach the prophet something that he wants to teach you and I. That God does not normally speak in some dramatic way in the Mount Carmel kinds of experiences as we seek to find his will. Think about this prophet and where he had been. He had seen the resurrection of a dead boy. He had seen a, a jar of oil habitually filled. He'd seen these meals supernaturally brought to him. He saw this great fireball come down out of heaven. And yet God wants him to know my specific will is simply found in the still, small voice. And the problem with Elijah, he had some unrealistic expectations. He wanted a repeat performance. But normally, again, God doesn't speak in the spectacular. He speaks in the glory of the grind, and that's what I need. Just in the everyday events of life to discern God's plan for my life. Earthquakes and fire, they're not common. But breezes happen all the time. Now, don't think that you need to have some dramatic experience. And again, I think some of this falsely comes Sometimes even from pastors who give this dramatic experience of how they were called into the ministry, maybe wanting to emulate the Apostle Paul. That is so exceptional and so rare, doesn't typically happen that way. The Spirit of God doesn't shout, He doesn't shove, He leads you, and He unfolds it. So how do I find God's specific will? Well, number one, you need to know that there's a balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we'll see that illustrated in just a moment. But let me give you some general principles that I think might be helpful. And again, assuming you've been born again, you're born twice, that you know heaven is your home, that the Spirit has borne witness to your spirit that you've become a child of God. Assuming that is true, Let me share three principles. First, you need to be willing to obey God. In Romans 12, after Paul had spent 11 chapters describing our great salvation, he says in the 12th chapter, in light of that, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's Scripture that you may prove, experience, test, know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the assumption of these verses is that God's will is found in the context of being obedient. It's found in being a living sacrifice. 
And it is in that context you will find the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Someone asked the hobo, where are you going to go next? He said, well, I just go wherever I want to go. Well, how do you know where you're supposed to go? He said, well, I, I take a stick and I throw it up in the air and see which way it points, and I go that way. Well, what happens if you come to a fork in the road? So I throw the stick up and I see if it points to the left or to the right. And said, said sometimes I have to keep throwing it up till it points in the right direction. You know, and, and sometimes we sing, we pray, wherever he leads, I'll go. But it's not really true. We're not a living sacrifice. So number one, you must be willing. Number two, you must be teachable. You must be teachable. Listen to these words from Psalm 25, 9. It's a principle echoed in the New Testament by James and Peter. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. The King James says he teaches the meek his way. The Hebrew word translated humble or meek, depending on your English Bible, speaks of a horse that is broken. They would say, well, that horse needs to be meeked, meaning he needs to learn how to respond to the reins. Are you meek? Are you teachable? Some people are listening to me and they're having a mental argument with me. And they're not really teachable. And such people cannot find the specific will. A third principle is you must be available. You must be available. The apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. And so you are to glorify God in your body, that is, with your whole person. Let me ask you a question. If God were to offer you as his will a blank contract and at the bottom just a signature line, would you sign it? You say, well, wait a minute. I always need to read the words of the contract before I can sign one. Not God's contract. You say that's unreasonable. That's not a good thing. No, it's your spiritual, reasonable service of worship. Any time, any place, any cost, wherever you lead, I'll go. And it's in that kind of a heart that you find this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so the human side in discovering God's specific will, I want you to see how it's illustrated in the apostles' lives in a moment and how it will be enacted in your life. And again, when you think of God's specific will, there are some non-negotiables. One non-negotiable is the Word of God. The will of God never contradicts the Word of God. And so if you're trying to find God's will and you're not filling your mind and your heart on a regular basis with Scripture, you're not going to find God's will for your life. You'll live your life. And you'll make a lot of potentially disastrous mistakes. But you won't find God's specific will. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And by the way, when you read the word of God, you need to read it and study in, it, in its historical context. And as you read and study it, if God says, don't do this, then you don't do it. And there are people who say, well, God is showing me to do this. And I say, he can't be showing you to do that because you're blatantly contradicting what God has revealed in Scripture. 
And so finding God's specific will involves first the word of God, but it also involves the providences of God. God in his providence, there's a difference between sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty refers to God's will over the whole universe as he runs it. The word providences is used to describe in theological circles of God's up-close and personal guidance on you. Paul will speak of this. Jesus will speak of how God in his providences can open and close doors. And so in the book of Revelation in the third chapter, he is the one who opens a door that no one can shut and who shuts a door that no one can open. Paul speaks of God's providences in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, how a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. He's saying that is, God has opened the door, a big opportunity for me to serve him in his kingdom. Then he quickly adds, and there are many adverse adversaries. When I was 33 years old, 33 years ago, I came to this church to be your pastor. And as we were seeking the Lord's will, there were two other churches that wanted me to come and be their pastor. And then after I agreed to come to this church, there were other churches that wanted me to be their pastor. And so what church do I go to? Well, God opens a door that no one can shut. And sometimes when he opens the door, it's not all honey and bees. There are many adversaries. The first Sunday I came, a number of people never came back. It's the way it goes. So God wants you to find his specific will. It's based on the word of God. It's based on the providence of God. But let me also say, God will unfold his specific will through the spirit of God. Listen to these promises that God made. First, Jesus said to his apostles in John 16 and verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. So the Spirit of God can lead us. Remember that meeting amongst the leaders in Acts 13? They're seeking God's will and God's plan. And in the midst of a prayer meeting, we're told that the Holy Spirit said to these leaders, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He directed the elders of the church in Antioch that of these two men, Barnabas and Paul, I want you to underwrite their ministry. They need to be missionaries supported and underwritten by the church in Antioch. Who showed them that? The Spirit of God showed them that. And so think about the situation here in this upper room as it relates to God's standard will and God's specific will. They knew it was part of God's standard will to choose a replacement. How did they know that? Because the book of Psalms wrote about it and Jesus spoke of it. And so we're told in verse 23 here of Acts 1, and they put forward two men, Joseph called Barabbas, Basabas, or the son of the father, so to speak, is what his name means, who is called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now notice the three actions that they took place. First, they put two men forward. We're not told why these two, except for the fact that they met the specified qualifications that God had given in his standard will. Secondly, they prayed 
They said, Lord, show us. And third, what did they? They drew lots. Now, remember, this is before Pentecost. They did not yet have the promise of the Spirit. This is the day Jesus ascended into heaven. They go a Sabbath day journey to this upper room. Between Acts 1 and Acts 2, there's 10 days, and there's two different locations. So here they are in this upper room, the same room that Jesus had given the promise of the Holy Spirit. But he had not yet been given, and so the guidance he would bring and the peace and the direction he would give and the whole decision-making process hadn't yet happened. And so they were relying on verses like Proverbs 16.33. Listen to this verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You say, well, why don't we draw lots today? Well, let me first say, when you read your Old Testament carefully, there are thousands of decisions that are made without ever using a lot. There's only about 80 total, and those include things like uh, which animal would be the scapegoat, uh, which tribe would get this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece of land, and a lot of multiplicity of things of the same kind of decisions, but thousands of decisions are not made with lots. They're made on what God had already revealed in Holy Scripture. And so think about it. Here are these godly men, but the canon of Scripture, number one, had not yet been completed, and number two, the Spirit of God had not yet been given. Again, this is still a future day. Remember in Isaiah 1.12, it says this of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Notice how the spirit of God who is going to minister through Messiah is described. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised to send the spirit of wisdom as he's called in Ephesians 1.17, and that he would give him to every true believer. Other than Luke 1 uh, in verse 19, where you have Zacharias, or Zechariah, you can translate his name either way, going and he draws a lot to see who is going to go into the temple to minister at the altar of incense. There were thousands of priests. But in the providence of God, he chose him because he's going to be the daddy of John the Baptist. Other than that passage and the one here in Acts 1, again, still both of those old covenant, pre-new covenant kinds of decisions. They never again draw a lot in the book of Acts, and it's never commanded in the epistles. And so today, like them, we pray and we look to the Spirit for guidance. Jot down this verse, Colossians 3.15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The Greek verb here, rule, is a, a word that means to act as an umpire, to, to call a decision, to be a referee. And so the Holy Spirit has become our umpire, our referee. And when you're out of the will of God, there is often just a check in your spirit. And it's like he says, don't do that. I don't want you to go in that direction. But when you're in the will of God, there is a a peace that rules your heart. I'm not talking about some person who says, well, I have this peace to make a decision that totally contradicts what God has said. And so we're not talking about the Spirit doing something contrary to the Word in which He is inspired. And please don't over-spiritualize it. Sometimes there's just some good common sense decisions that God allows you to make. Should I buy Crest toothpaste or Colgate or Arm & Hammer? 
God, I can hear him saying, why don't you buy the one that tastes the best to you? I hate that bubble gum stuff. I don't know about you. Should I wear a red tie today or a yellow tie? Why don't you wear the one that matches your suit? And so sometimes we can over-spiritualize it. But let me suggest one way, uh, and there are certainly others, but some essential principles in finding this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. One more way. There's the providences of God. There's the Spirit of God. But then finally, in the Word of God, but finally, there's the people of God. There's the people of God. Proverbs will say, and you see this illustrated elsewhere in the Scripture, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there's victory. That's what they're doing at the Jerusalem Council. They're consulting with one another that they might find God's will. Proverbs 15, 22, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So you talk to human counselors, of course, make sure that they're A, born again, and B, spirit-filled, because you don't want to get their advice otherwise, but God can give solid counsel through fellow believers. And at some point in our life, all of us have a need for some fellow believer who will come alongside. And let me just say, if you are living under the authority of your parents and you're a teenager, you should heed your parents' counsel. Ladies, young teenagers, your mom can spot in 10 seconds some boy who's got the wrong motives than you might figure out in three months. And dads can give a young man direction over a woman who should never be trusted and should be fled from. And let me just say parenthetically, parents need to have the wisdom and discernment when to let their children go. We spoke about this a little bit last time. Wisdom dictates that you transition them at 18, 19, 20 years of age. You begin to transition them to be independent. You say, Pastor, do you really believe you can find the specific will of God Absolutely. Now, there's much more I need to say, but we're out of time. I've already gone over, so I'm just going to give you these four things. You can jot them down. You can go home and think about them this afternoon. Number one, know that the will of God is always best. By way of application, the will of God is always best. So knowing and doing the will of God is the best thing that can ever happen to you. And if you're married, it's the best thing for your spouse and your children The best thing that could ever happen to this church would be for the pastors and the elders and the deacons to be in the will of God. We owe it to each other as as members of one another. Remember, God's not trying to hide his will. He wants to give it to you. It's not something you have to find. It is something he will reveal, but critically that you must choose to obey. Secondly, the will of God is attainable. It is attainable. You will find God's will, so don't overcomplicate it. Every year I try to help young men and women as I meet with those graduating seniors to discern God's providence. And many times they're, I didn't get the scholarship at this university, but I got one over here, or this school is going to cost me so much, and I'll come out with $100,000 of debt. And if I come out of this school, maybe I'll have $5,000 of debt, maybe none. Which should I go to? I would say, well, as a general principle with an undergraduate school, undergraduate degree, at least if it's accredited and it has a fair reputation, go to the one that you come out with cheaper. Because everybody today has a college degree. A college degree today is what a high school degree was 40 years ago. If you're going to spend money and borrow, don't borrow it on the undergraduate degree, spend it on the graduate degree. 
But my point is, is that if you're walking with God and you're pleasing God, don't overcomplicate it because God is more eager to show you your will than you might even be to find it. And if God gives you something to do, he'll give you the power to attain that plan. He'll never ask you to do something that he won't make the provision along the way. Third, not only is the will of God attainable, the will of God is a choice. Just know that in the end of God, in the end, the will of God is a choice. You have to choose God's sovereign will. He wants you to be saved. You have to choose God's standard will, maybe to go public with your faith, to be baptized, commit yourself to a local assembly. And then you have to obey God's specific will in the day-to-day experiences of life. But just know you are free to choose the will of God or free not to do the will of God, but you are not free to escape the consequences of that choice. Fourth, the will of God is made up of little decisions. It's made up of little decisions. The big decisions that people face sometimes almost paralyze some. And one of the reasons is because they're not consistently obeying the smaller decisions. Jesus said he was faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. And most of our daily decisions are not some big dramatic life-changing kind of thing. They're not complicated at all. It's, am I going to get up and read and study the Bible this morning and be alone with God or not? Am I going to binge watch movies on Saturday night so I'm too tired to get up and go to church? And so you have a major decision like marriage to make, but when you've made thousands of little decisions along the way concerning friendship and commitment and integrity, it's not a difficult decision to find. So here are these apostles. They went up into an upper room like Christ commanded. They waited. They prayed based on the will of God. They selected two men, and then God revealed his will. But it's hard to guide a ship that's not moving. And if you are obeying what you know, you will grow. I will often tell people to understand the part of the Bible you do not know, obey the will of God that you do know. When you begin to obey the parts of the Bible that you understand, God will show you the parts that you don't understand. And when you obey the parts of God's will that you know to be clear and specific and part of his standard and sovereign will, he'll make the rest very clear. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let me just say it is God's sovereign will this morning that you be saved. And if you're not saved, you can be saved today. It's not earned. It's not merited. It is on the basis of a finished and completed work. And whoever will receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, can be saved today. Would you exchange your sin for a Savior? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? It's God's standard will, if you've done that, to go public, to be baptized and to commit yourself to a local assembly. And God may have shown some of you specifically that you need to be a member here. And I want to encourage you to do what he has shown you and only what he has shown you. Now, our Father, we're thankful that you've not left us in the dark, that you love us, that you've prepared beforehand the good works that we should walk in. Help us that when we meet you in heaven, we'll not be disappointed, but we will be so pleased because by your grace and your mercy, we achieve the plans and the purposes that you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.